continue our summer series for the summer through the book of Judges, and we're going to today look at Judges 17 and 18. You may hear in my voice that I'm battling a sinus infection, and uh, I am determined to speak a little bit less. This may be a blessing or a curse to you. I don't know which one, uh, but just because I've determined to speak a little less does not mean that I will accomplish my determination. But we are looking forward to considering the Word of God. And uh, so if you open up your Bible to Judges 17 and 18, uh, and you keep your Bible open there, it, it, will, be, uh, it will be helpful uh, as we're not opening our sermon with a, uh, a reading from Scripture. But we will read much of the passage throughout the sermon. It's also good for us to remember that this is our second to last sermon in this series and in two weeks, we will be going back to the Gospel of Mark. In 2020, a Pew research estimated that nearly 3.4 billion people in the world claim to be Christians. This is a significant portion of the world population, nearly one-third of the world. But is this data true? Is it true that one in every three persons we meet in the world worship the one true God? Is it true that one in every three persons in the world are united with Christ by faith? Is it true that one out of every three persons we meet in the world have been regenerated by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit? Is it possible that some... Perhaps many, perhaps most of the people who claim Christianity are practicing a false religion. And the answer is yes, it is possible. Biblical Christianity is not made up of those who merely call themselves Christians, but of those who know Christ and are known by him. False religion gives the impression of a right standing before God, but its foundations are deceptive. False religion is built on the ideas of men, but true religion is built on the word of God. Jesus reminds us of this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. As he says in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Today we're entering a new section in the book of Judges. No longer are we going to hear about Judges. We've met all 12 of them, but now the camera zooms out and shows the moral condition of the whole people of Israel. 
And the verdict is not good. As I mentioned in the beginning of the series, the book of Judges is organized geographically rather than chronologically. So for the last two messages we're going to observe, we'll have no clear indication of when these events took place, but we have very clear evidence of where these events took place, and this will be of great relevance for us. In today's story, we'll meet a man called Micah. By the way, Micah was a common name in Israel. Micah is an idolater who started his own religion. Along with Micah, we'll meet a godless Levite. And we're going to see the tribe of Dan. So in some ways, this story continues the story of Samson because it's Samson's own tribe. We're going to see the tribe of Dan moving away from the land that the Lord had given them. As far from Jerusalem as possible. And along with this movement, we're going to see their religion fall apart. Today's passage has almost a Shakespearean feel to it. Folly is at the center of the story, but it is told in an almost comical way. In some ways, the story functions as a comic relief for the depths of depravity that we're going to see in our story next week. So as we consider our text today, we're going to consider the marks of false religion. And my hope is that you will consider your own religion so that you can be sure that your house is built on the rock and not on the sand. So what is the first mark that we see in our text of false religion? First mark we see today is sincerity apart from truth. Sincerity apart from truth. One of the most deceptive lies the devil wants you to believe is that God will accept your worship if you are simply sincere. Sincerity is not the foundation of Christian worship, although, although it is a byproduct of it. Christian worship rests on faithful obedience. But this is not what we see in our passage today. Look at verse 1. There was a man on the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you water a curse, and also spoke in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. What a strange opening. This man named Micah steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother, which, by the way, would have been a great fortune. Millions and millions of dollars in today's currency. 
And when the mother realizes that her money is missing, she utters a curse. So Micah, afraid of the curse, admits to stealing her money. But instead of doing what parents ought to do, reprimand and teach him, she blesses him. In an attempt to offset the curse. But the story gets even stranger at this point. Look at verse 3. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. By the way, this is the same amount that Delilah was given in order to betray Samson. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. So if we stopped here, we would say, praise God. That is good, right? So to dedicate money to the Lord is a good thing. But notice that we don't have a period here. We have a comma. To make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. The moral decadence of Israel has gone so deep into the religious fabric that Micah's mother wants to dedicate her fortune to the Lord by fashioning idols. I mean, does she even know the second commandment? As a matter of fact, just think of some of the commandments that are being broken here. There's idolatry. There is no honoring of parents. There is stealing. There is bearing false witness. There is coveting. In a superficial look right there, half of the commandments are broken. There is no regard for the law of the Lord in Israel. And yet, what we see in verse 3 is an attempt to worship the Lord. Did you hear that? I dedicate the silver to the Lord. Micah's mom says that she wants to worship God with the money. She sounds honest. She sounds sincere. But she sounds completely misguided. Should God receive this kind of worship? Is sincerity enough for God to receive our worship? Does God care? That we worship Him our own way? Or does God want us to worship Him His way? Friends, I know Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, all sorts of heretical religions and people who are sincere in their desire to worship God. But they're not worshiping the one true God. They worship God according to their wisdom and not according to his words. When it comes to worship, good intentions are not enough. God cares not only that we worship him. He cares about how he is worshipped. 
God cares that we worship Him His way. In the book of Leviticus, we read the story of the sons of Aaron. Aaron is the priest, and his sons were priests as well. They decided to worship God their own way, and the, the result was dire. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Does God care about how he is worshipped? People have died for not worshipping God according to his commandments. Verse 3, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Did you notice where the problem was with the worship of Nadab and Abihu? They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commended them. So does the Lord command us today to worship him in a specific way? way oh yes he does when he meets the woman at the well in john 4 she asks him how should we worship god and he answers god is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth the red regenerating power of the spirit and the truth of god's word is what leads to worship that is acceptable by god jesus didn't tell the woman as long as you're sincere with your worship, God will accept your worship. As long as you have good intentions, it doesn't matter that your theology is sound. As long as you do good things, it doesn't matter that you've been caused to be born again. Jesus does not say that. Jesus says that God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. This is why every week before we begin our services... We remind you that at Central, our services are shaped and saturated by the Word of God. We do not let eternal forces dictate how we worship God. God dictates how we should worship God. We love our visitors, but our service is to God and not to our visitors we want our visitors to turn to the God we worship. We love relevance, but we look for timeless truths in order to guide us. We look to God's word to determine what we will do when we come together. And what does the word of God tell us to do? The word of God tell us, tells us to preach the word in season and out of season. The Word of God tells us to sing the Word unto one another as we seek to build one another up and encourage one another. The Word of God tells us to pray the Word, lifting up holy hands. The Word of God tells us not to neglect the public reading of Scripture. The Word of God tells us to see the Gospel 
portrayed before us by observing the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper, as we're going to do later on today. So when Brother Jeff and I come together every Tuesday, after Jeff spent time prayerfully considering the elements of the service on Monday, we pray to put the service together. And we look for direction in the Word of God so we can worship God according to what He commands. Often churches view preaching as an opportunity to entertain. Prayers are used as transitions to fill in the gaps during the service and not as a time for us to approach the throne of God. Scripture reading is completely neglected. The singing emphasizes performance rather than participation. And the ordinances are observed without any connection to the mandate of our Lord. I heard of a church just yesterday that baptizes by virtual reality. So many churches observe the Lord's Supper remotely, ignoring what the Apostle says several times in 1 Corinthians, when you come together. So the ordinances, are supposed to, the ordinances that are supposed to unite us in Christ are setting us apart. Friends, God cares about how we approach Him. So when we disregard biblical instructions on public worship, we see the consequences not just in our gatherings, that become more and more shallow by the day. But we also see these consequences in our lives. Because the elements of Christian worship are the very means by which God puts out His grace for us to grow and for us to be more Christ-like. In verses 4 and 5, Micah's mother hires a silversmith she initially says that she would dedicate the money to the Lord, but she gives the silversmith only a portion of the money. And he fashions idols for her. Well, this is not terribly surprising, right? As we see the deterioration in the in this history of Israel, it came to a point in the revival that Israel came uh, uh, experienced under King Josiah, that they realized they hadn't read the Word of God in centuries. And when we don't read the Word of God, we don't know what God expects of us. So Micah prepares a shrine for these idols in his house, and he appoints, ordains his own son as a priest. And in verse 6, we hear the motto of this book. And we understand here why such trouble. Verse 6, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We're going to hear this phrase four more times in the book. The book of Judges is a book that points us to the necessary leadership of godly men 
over the people of God. Why such religious deterioration? Because there was no king in Israel. So everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But not only was the worship of Israel compromised because they rested it on good intentions rather than the word of God. We're going to see now that they also looked for godless leaders. Godless leaders. So in verse 7, we meet a young Levite from Bethlehem of Judah. This is the city of the great king. So it's not surprising that verse 7 follows verse 6. This is the city of David. This is the city of Jesus. But this Levite was not great. A Levite was a member of the tribe of Levi. Levites were priestly or it was a were a priestly order which means they were leaders of the worship in Israel. They didn't lead worship in the way that we think of a worship leader today, leading in songs, they led sacrifices. Out of all the tribes the Levites were never allotted a piece of land. They lived off of the resources that the other tribes provided. Some Levites were directly responsible for the worship in the temple or in the tabernacle. But because the land was so vast, God instructed Moses to appoint 48 cities for the Levites throughout the land. So the whole land had access to these priests, these Levites. So it wasn't wrong or surprising for a Levite to sojourn as we see this young Levite sojourning here. Although Levites were not primarily teachers of the law, they needed to be deeply familiarized with it because the job of a Levite was to represent the people before God. It's different than the job of a prophet, right? The prophet represents God before the people. The Levite represents the people before God. So we meet this Levite today in the house of Micah. As soon as Micah meets the Levite, he is enamored with his office. He offers him a small salary and invites him to be his own priest. Micah is building here his own religion. And this is a false religion. And the Levite who was supposed to lead Micah to the presence of God is instead led by Micah to the presence of his idols. This is a good reminder that an office doesn't necessarily make someone godly. We need to be cautious as we think of spiritual leadership in the church. Sometimes we can assume godliness because of titles and experience, but godliness is observable. And this is why Paul tells Timothy not to be hasty on the laying of hands. It takes time. To observe godliness. I've heard of a pastor that preached a sermon at a church as he, as he did pulpit supply. And the church, which was without a pastor at that moment, was so impressed with his preaching 
that they immediately invited him to become their pastor? His answer, no. I can't accept your invitation because you have not observed the way I treat my wife. You have not observed the way I care for my children. You have not observed the way I interact with others. You don't know if my message matches my life. My pe- preaching professor back in seminary says that he was approached by a headhunting agency looking for a lead pastor, and they asked him for a creative, seasoned leader who can bring out of the box thinking. But they never mentioned anything about his character or his ability or fidelity to the word. Friends, the most important aspect of spiritual leadership is godliness. The most important aspect of spiritual leadership is godliness. Knowledge, eloquence, boldness, charisma. This can be helpful. But apart from godliness, they will bring praise to men and not to God. Micah was impressed with the young Levite because of his title. Look at verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me. Why? Because no longer is my priest my son. Now I have a Levite as my priest. But no, the Lord prospers not the man who has a Levite as a priest, but the man who is wise. The man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but instead delights on the law of the Lord day and night. Prosperity is a result of being near to God. And not a result of being near to religious people. Friend, do you think of prosperity in this way? Are you easily impressed with men? That you forget that there is no such a thing as great men of God. Just weak men who trust in a powerful God. When India and I arrived in Louisville for seminary, we decided to join a church that was made up of, largely made up of seminary community. About 66% of the members of the church were in some way connected with the seminary, either families that were studying there or professors. I remember arriving and meeting the people and just feeling utterly inadequate. It seemed like everyone had their lives well put together except for Indy and I. Large families with well-behaved children and incredible theological depth. For a bit, Indy and I really felt like we didn't belong. Perhaps these people have achieved a level of holiness that was too high for us. Well, this all changed when we joined a small group. The first day we attended the small group, the men and the women split up for accountability and we realized 
that the holiness of that community was not based on the lack of sin. There were plenty of sins, grave sins, that were confessed. Their holiness was based on an understanding that sinners find grace in Christ. If you find a sinner who understands the grace of Christ, that's a great person. That's a person that you should look to. That's a person that you should follow and learn from. So indeed, there was holiness in that place. But that holiness was based on a recognition of our sins and an understanding that God's grace is greater than our sin. A man is great if he understands that in Christ he can find grace. Friends, do not put men or women or a group of people on a pedestal. You will be utterly disappointed if you really get to know them. In days in which you can just click a few buttons and listen to the most eloquent preachers on YouTube, we can be so deceived. But friends, we, godliness is observed over time by proximity. A man who understands the grace of Christ in light of his sin is a great man. Well, let's continue our text today as we consider now another aspect of false religion. Let's consider now selfish ambition. Now we turn to chapter 18. And once again, we hear the motto in verse 1. This time partial. This time only the first half. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Lack of leadership is a big problem. Israel needed a king, but a godly king. God tells Israel what godliness looks like in a king. The king should be so familiarized with God's word that he should give the people direction. This is a contrast with what God wanted for his people. There was no king, so people did what was right in their own eyes. But a king is supposed to be the leader of the people, leading them to God. Sometimes we can think that having a king was not the plan for Israel all along. Well, that is not true. We know that God tells Samuel that the reason why the people chose Saul as a king was a rejection of God and not a rejection of Samuel. But God all along desired to give King David to his people. And we know that because back in Deuteronomy 17, we hear the explanation of the role of a king. So God all along wanted his people to have a king, but he wanted that king to be godly. So listen to Deuteronomy 17, 18 through, 18 through 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that is the king, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it reading it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart 
may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. But Israel had no king. So we see in chapter 18, the tribe of Dan walking around aimlessly. The tribe of Dan was Samson's own tribe. Dan was supposed to have settled in a land just north of Judah, but they failed to conquer that land. Look back, back in chapter 1, we read Judges 1, 34. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So because Dan did not conquer the land for the Amorites, they were wandering around looking for a land to grab. They came to the house of Micah and recognized the young Levite there. They asked the Levite in verse 5, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting, setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. But the narrative points us to the contrary. It's important for us to know that the Bible, often in narrative, simply describes events and doesn't always prescribe events. This endeavor was not from the Lord. Then was not to land grab the city that they are interested in. The Levites did not speak from God, but the tribe of Dan had no discernment or desire to hear the voice of God. This is a problem that we're familiarized with. When we are determined to build our own kingdom, we often ignore the voice of God. Worse, when we're determined to build our own kingdom, we can convince ourselves that the Lord is affirming our desires, but the Lord does not affirm selfish ambition. And what is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is considering my needs as more important than the need, needs of others. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Selfish ambition comes from a place of unbelief. The Lord gave the land to the tribe of Dan, but they failed to have victory against the Amorites. Was it because they were too weak? The Lord had no problem delivering the Ammonites to Gideon with 300 men. The Lord had no problem giving the Philistines to the hands of Samson, just one man. Were they too weak? No. Their faith was too weak. So they should have returned to the Lord. They should have pleaded with the Lord to grant them the land that, they had, that he had promised them, but they didn't. Instead, they avoided the conflict with the stronger people and went to the city called Laish. There they saw a people that were quiet 
and unsuspecting. In other words, these were people who were minding their own business. And they decided to grab their land. It's important for us to see that every time that the Lord commanded Israel to attack a people in the book of Judges, it was because that people was first oppressing Israel. We don't see that here. The people in the country of Laish were just minding their own business. The country of Laish was a territory north of the Promised Land, beyond the barriers of the Promised Land. Laish was about 100 miles north of the land that the Lord had originally given to Dan. This was considerably beyond the frontiers of the land. This was north of every tribe. Even worse, this is a movement away from Judah and the city of the king, Jerusalem. But they desired that which wasn't theirs. That which the Lord hadn't given them, they decided to grab by force. The Lord does not approve of the dissatisfaction that leads us to oppress others. Proverbs 23, 10, and 11. Do not move the ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. In other words, do not take the land of the weak. For their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. On their way to Laish, 600 of the Denites armed for war stopped at Micah's house. So let's read a little bit of the narrative here, starting in verse 14. Then the five men who had gone to scout the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, and carved image? And a metal image. Now, therefore, consider what you will do. What does this mean? Let's take those things. Let's take those idols. Verse 15. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levites at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Verse 16. Now, the 600 men of the Denites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with 600 men armed with weapons of war. In other words, he was too weak to protect his shrine Verse 18, and when these went to Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household's gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the household of one man or to be priest to the tribe and clan of it to a tribe and clan in Israel. In other words, they tell him, Your role's too small, come with us, you will be exalted among us. 
You get too little for what you're worth. Come with us and you will, will pay what you're worth. Friends, whenever we're thinking of the work of God in terms of moving from greener to greener pastures, we're confused. We're confused about what God does. Faithfulness is what we're called to present. We, we must not worry about the provision that the Lord makes. He always provides. God always provides exactly what we need. So we need to rest. And we need to not think, oh, if we can only come to a point where our budget is X. Oh, if we can just get a few more people in our pews. Oh, if we could just get better leaders. Friends, the Lord provides for us exactly what we need. So we need to serve out of faith and not think that our church will be stronger and better through human means. But this is not what this young priest believes in verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved images and went along with the people. So now they're breaking the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal, in order to break the second commandment. Don't bow down before carved images. They are stealing in order to practice idolatry. How low has the religion of Israel come? This episode reminds us of Israel in the wilderness, doesn't it? Moses went up to the mountain Sinai. And Israel chose to worship the golden calf as Moses receives the law from God. But there's a great difference. When Moses sees the people committing idolatry, his rage is poured out on the people. His zeal for the holiness of God would not allow for the people's sin to go unchecked. But what about the Levite in this story? Does his leadership resemble the leadership of Moses? Is he anything like Moses? No. While the people follow Moses in the desert, the Levite is now following the people. While Moses walked towards the promised land, this Levite charges against the city of Jerusalem. The man that is supposed to lead the people into the holiness of God instead is led by the people to idolatry. The land of Laish was desirable. The people were weak. The enemies were far, but so was Jerusalem. So was the city of the great king. They chose the land of convenience over the land that they were called to conquer. Convenience and comfort are not the most important principles in decision-making in the Christian life, nearness to God is. And in verses 21 through 26, Micah tries to stop the Danites from taking his idols and priests, but they were too strong, so he just gave up. The chapter ends with the Danites coming to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned 
their cities. In verse 31, we hear the dark and sad ending of this story. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Why is this happening? Why is false religion flourishing among the people of Israel? The people who have been given the oracles of the one true God. The people who have been given the law of God. The people who have entered into covenants with God. Why are they so drawn to idolatry? Because in those days, there was no king in Israel. So everyone did what was right in his own, eye, in his own eyes. Friends, idolatry is native to the fallen human condition. Idolatry lives in the human heart. We may or may not be building shrines in our homes, but we're all pursuing idols in our hearts in the place of God. We want to live in Laish because the Amorites of the heart are too powerful. So we head north, away from the city of the great king. But it's interesting because in just two weeks, we're going to return to the Gospel of Mark. And there we'll find Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, which was not far from Laish. This is north of the territory. This is as far from Jerusalem as we will see Jesus in his entire ministry. But in the second half of the book of Mark, we're going to see Jesus do the opposite of what the people of Dan did. Jesus does not flee to the comforts and securities of Laish. Jesus runs to the cross in Jerusalem. Unlike the people of Dan, Jesus does not seek self-preservation. He seeks not to save his life, but to give it. You see, ultimately, the Danites needed a king, a king like Jesus, that leads his people not only away from the city of men, but that leads the people into the city of God. Jesus knew knew the dangers and the perils of Jerusalem. And yet, he set his gaze on that city. As he interacts in the Garden of Gethsemane with the Father, his will is in turmoil within him. But he says, not my will be done, but yours. Why? Because it is in Jerusalem where you find the throne of Jesus. And it is also in Jerusalem where you find his cross. False religion stakes to fulfill one's own selfish ambition, but true religion is selfless and selfless to the point of death. And this is what we see in Christ. Friends, let us abandon the lingering false religion that remains in us because our lives must not be about ourselves. Let not your religion be about your sincerity but about the truth. Let not your religion be about a man, 
but let it be about God. Let not your religion be about your ambition, but let your religion be about Christ. Galatians 5.15 And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Yes, Jesus died to pay for our sins. Yes, Jesus is that king that leads us away from our self-idolatry so that we can consider him as supreme and as God. Yes, Jesus is the great king that Israel needed and that we need today so that our eyes may not be on men, but so that our eyes may be on God. But Jesus didn't just die in order to pay for our sins. Jesus died in order to teach us to live for him. The gospel is not just about that moment of conversion that we turn from self and turn to God. The gospel is about a life that is lived, lived, that is lived of faith and repentance, constant turning away from our idols and towards the one true God. Friends, if you're not looking to Christ as your king, if you're not looking to his sacrifice as your guide for life, so that you may learn not to live for yourself, but so that you may learn to live for Christ, your religion is false, and it will not lead you to eternal life. But if you turn to Christ today, confessing your sins, in recognizing that your only hope is to find the king and to follow him to his cross and to his throne. You will be forgiven your sins and you will have the hope of eternal life. So friend, do you know the hope of Christ? Do you know the promise of sins forgiven? Do you know the promise of righteousness granted? If you hear his voice today do not harden your hearts would you pray with me father we can be so drawn to the city of men and not to the city of god help us lord even now as we consider the lord's supper lord help us see christ in this ceremony so that we can find in him hope we pray in the name of jesus amen